Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, Cost-Effectiveness of Widespread Non-Invasive NASH Testing and Treatment. This conversation explores future directions for the conduct and explanation of cost-effectiveness studies in fatty liver disease. Mazanuruddin discusses some of the directions he sees his work taking, while Louise Campbell provides recent data from other studies to provide context. And Stephen Harrison asks how expanding focus to consider hepatocellular carcinoma might affect the cost-effectiveness models. Finally, Louise, Mazin, and I consider how the public explanation of expanding testing recommendations might sit with patients and other stakeholders. This groundbreaking work has the potential to expand and redefine the role of population testing in the coming fatty liver pandemic. You'll want to hear it. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, as they discuss the cost-effectiveness of widespread patient testing using non-invasive techniques today on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. The importance of work like this is that it shapes the decisions that people make going forward in terms of guidelines and then in terms of who gets treated and, and at what level. How do you see the work evolving over time? And based on what you've seen so far, how do you see therapeutic decision points and modalities evolving over time? A, before we get drugs, and then B, as we get drugs. Yeah, so I mentioned screening and I mentioned treatment. The government agencies, the insurers and all that, when they approve drug or screening procedure, they, they, they're going to look for cost effectiveness. I mean, of course, patients' well-being and saving transplants and all that, it's our priority. But also the government agency and insurance wants to make sure, for instance, the pharmaceutical companies are not charging more than the drug worth. So based on like a lot of cost-effectiveness models, let's say, I'll just give an example of drug X. Drug X say, I'm going to target the F3 population for this amount of dollars per month, and this is why my drug costs. So once we have drugs approvals, the government agencies and the insurers will sit down and say, this drug, I'm just throwing a number, I'm not suggesting anything, $1,000 a month, you're probably going to use it for three years. We still don't know if it's going to be used forever, like the diabetes drug, but I'm just giving random examples. $1,000 a month, now 36000 is it the right, do we have the right population F3, how much is going to save us. Of course, I mean, here it sounds like F3 patients use thousand a dollar a month. It likely will be cost effective, but they will be looking at, in addition to the screening we, we did, if these costs, if these drugs are cost effective and which priority population they're going to use it on, especially those with advanced fibrosis. There's quite increase in hazard ratios and odds ratios of morbidities and mortalities, especially when you reach F3s. So the biggest question will be when we get to therapies, the drug price and what is the right population to treat F3s and 
than F2s based on drug price. Of course, all of us want to start early at F2s, but there will be a lot of modelings, even if it's not published, a lot of insurance companies and government agencies do that. Do that. So I guess to, to answer your question, in addition to looking at screening cost effectiveness, the next step in the, in the cost effectiveness in the field will be probably looking at the potential approved drugs and uh, the duration of their use and if they will be cost effective for the system. So moving on from that, in the context of health screening and the sort of health insurers, Alina Allen and a team did a lovely piece of work a couple of years back where they looked at 100 million customers and they reviewed them. And I think they split them 152,000 approximately with NAFLD. And they showed that the average annual cost of a new NAFLD diagnosis was $7,000. So anywhere between 3000 and 18000 But the long-term management was $3,789 against a match control of $2,298 for somebody without NAFLD. So where do you suspect it becomes cost-effective to do a FIB4, an AST-ALT ratio, or a fibre scan on a lot of patients to try and work out who's going to be those costs? Is it earlier in the timeline? Would it be later? Because we know these people keep presenting to GPs undiagnosed for a long time. So before I comment on the FIB4, let me just comment on the NASH cost. So the NASH cost, I, I just want to bring it to your attention that this is probably on the lower scale of cost because, as you know, NASH can be broken down into those with F2, F3, F4, and cirrhotics are way more costly and those with HCC are more costly. And of course, the most costly one is the liver transplant or long ICU admission and death. So the, the cost can be, from what you said, it can be fractionated into way more cost. Your question of FIB4 is right on. We were actually asked by the gastroenterology journal reviewers about FIB4. And the reviewers we got, I, I could not ask for better. They were very constructive. Rarely happens in, in from three reviewers, but the three were just right on. We wrote about 16 pages of reply, but all great points. And I think it improved the analysis. And one of the things that we addressed in the paper briefly, because they asked us to rightfully so, what do you think of FIB4 and NAFL fibrosis score? To answer your question directly, I think FIB4 is a cheap test that will always be cost effective to score. And we expected that from our data. And we told them we did not calculate it based on FIB4 and NAFL fibrosis score because basically we wanted to start a little bit earlier. As you know, NAFL fibrosis score and FIB4, they usually differentiate advanced fibrosis or no advanced fibrosis and you have the gray zone area. So we said if you take the 2.67, for us it's a little bit too late and we wanted to capture patients early. But if you use the FIB4 as of today, it will be cost effective for our model for sure, even if I don't put the number in the calculator. There's a way also around that you can use another cutoff for FIB4. Lower than 2.67, hopefully it will include more F2s. That will require looking at the data more carefully and how sensitive it is for F2 in specific and yada yada. But the cost, I think, will be super cheap. So yes, if you are advocating for FIB4 to be used for screening, I I will say screen and use whatever cheap tool that is good and you think it's going to help your patient. Mason, just thinking a little bit more about liver cancer and the fact that it in fatty liver behaves maybe more like hepatitis B than it does like hepatitis C, where very often we have to go through this cirrhotic paradigm to get to liver cancer in the setting of, of hepatitis C. And in fatty liver, we, we see that it can pop up randomly with, you know, NASH with milder forms of 
fibrosis and even reported cases of NAFLD leading straight to liver cancer. It tends to be population specific. I know Rohit presented some nice data at NASHTAG looking at genetic variants influencing this as well. But how do you see this conundrum of liver cancer popping up randomly without any clear demographic speculation on our part as primary care or GI docs in identifying the at-risk liver cancer patient. How does that play into your modeling and does it change the Markov model? Do you have to make some assumptions there, I assume? Well, we, we actually used published data on that. Of course, there was not quite enough data that we wished for. So most of the HCC was heavy on the extreme side of the disease. We did take that in consideration that HCC can, I guess, pop up in earlier stages. But I wish we have more data. But just like, you know, your question, actually, why you were asking me this question, it came to mind if we should do a separate project, which is the following. As you know, for hepatitis B, there are recommendations for screening for non-serotics or HCC, and especially in Asian population, there's the Africans as well, and there's age cutoff for each one. And of course, that was all based on cost-effective analysis data and modeling. So you just stimulated a conversation if we should look for when to start screening for NAFLD and HCC even before cirrhosis. I think Rohit and Hashim Saraj put some guidance, uh, a little bit provocative, but kind of predictive the future screening of HCC. But I think cost-effective data will be quite helpful. So that's a very important question you asked, Stephen. That is a great next step for you to, to really dive into that a little bit more and, and see if, if there are specific subsets that we should be focusing on. Again, like I said, you could take this as foundational and spend an entire career on this. And you do so many other things well, it's going to be hard to figure out where you want to devote your time and effort and energy at the same time of being a, a mom, a dad to, to two little girls, right? Uh, one and minus one. Well, one on the way. Yes. And for this project, I think we should move to look for these one to screen for HCC, and you will sure get a credit and we'll get you involved if we start that. Congratulations, Stephen. One more benefit of, of participating in this podcast. Stephen doesn't need credits, but every credit helps. I get that part. Yeah, it's a, but it's always good to give people back their ideas and get them involved. And of course, like with Stephen, we'll get way more input and beneficial input. So question, from your work, we start introducing, hopefully, screening diabetes. How do you, as an endocrinologist, have that conversation with your patient that says, we are now going to start screening you for fatty liver disease because you have a considerable risk of liver cancer, fibrosis, and you might have a risk of liver transplantation. And the patient turns around and says, well, why haven't you done that before? Oh, we've now decided it's cost effective to do that. That wouldn't make me feel particularly comfortable as a patient saying, so you've known that there's a risk, but it hasn't been cost effective until now. How do you think that conversation is going to go? Because that's an awful lot of people we are now recommending getting screened that a lot of people for a long time have said, should be screened? Well, I mean, this is the nature of science and evolving data. As you know, like, I'll give you an example of the colon cancer screening. These data has changed over time. And now, based on your data, we are changing screening to age of 45 rather than 50. So it's the nature of the beast, I guess. A lot of patients would not know what is the term cost effective. So in, I would imagine a lot of endocrinologists will be saying, we have a new data that this disease is serious 
this. And now our societies, hopefully, are recommended screening for it, while before the societies did not recommend screening for it. And the, the, the societies are always the umbrella or the source that change things. So it can be addressed in the right term, in the right way, and basically based on society's data. Louise, listening to your question, I think I agree with Mawson that if what happens is a society changes its recommendation, then the packaging to the patient or the discussion of the patient winds up being about the new recommendation from the society, not about the fact that it's based on cost effectiveness. Um, my guess is some patients might drill into that, but most won't. Uh, and I've spent enough time interviewing patients on the way out of a doctor's office about what do they remember what were they thinking about at that moment? You have to remember that half of the content of the average conversation is lost to the patient because mostly what they're doing is hearing about the new recommendation and what it pretends about their health. So I would be worried if that was the conversation everybody was going to have over and over again, but I don't, in practical terms, I don't envision it. Frankly, we've looked at this in enough countries. So I, I want to remind you of also, we tried also to model metabolic syndrome was not easy to do uh, because the data was a little bit less clear and we don't want to include controversial data. The type 2 diabetes data were very clear. And the nice thing about type 2 diabetes is that they have already pathways. They check for retina, they check for heart, they check for this and that. For this paper, we're not asking to screen everyone. We're recommending starting at the age of 40. Sure, you will miss some patients, but from cost effectiveness and practicality, you're going to start looking at these adults age of 40 with type 2 diabetes, and it can be built easily into their health maintenance kind of checklist. It, in, indeed, just imagine that we all now with EPIC that the type 2 diabetes patients uh, know the pop-up that we use or the formula they will just spit out FIB4 for you before they leave. And even like you can have FIB4 interpretation with it. So that's not which will trigger referral or not. So things like this we're thinking of. There have been multiple paper in how to formulate that in primary care and do But as I said earlier, the society guidelines should give credibility to these proven data before anyone starts. Oh, yeah, I'm just being devil's advocate on those ones. Absolutely. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingmash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode, and we will release our next episode on Wednesday, March 31st. At that time, our guest will be Dr. Ian Rowe, who will discuss some of the work he and his colleague, Dr. Richard Parker, are conducting about cost-effective screening and treatment with their population in Leeds, UK. Theirs is a different way of looking at cost-effectiveness. Because of the significant differences between the U.S. and U.K. healthcare systems, I hope you will join us then. Till then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.